Hey, Ozark, it's great to be with you. Uh, as a matter of fact, I got to tell you, I didn't realize how much I'd mid- missed the Midwest. Everything's so green here. And I live in California. And, uh, you know, some of my friends said, man, we, it just never rains here. And I said, dude, you, you live in a desert. It doesn't rain here. And so just driving through all of these cornfields, I was in Indianapolis driving through cornfields and I think soybean fields, everything's just so beautiful and green and you forget how blessed you guys are really to have rain. Of course you have snow and some other things that I could do without, but beautiful place here. Um, I think that the, the best thing about living in the Midwest is the community. You forget about that when you move to different places. The community here, the way people respond to each other, interact. I mean, I was greeted by a great team this morning. Just the chapel service that we just had. I've been to three or four different places. This was the best by far. Just your music, your worship, the intensity, your passion to be here. You actually look like you want to be here. That's a good thing concerning chapel. And uh, I just, I think that it's a wonderful, beautiful thing that you have Uh, this community, this place. Um, You know, oftentimes, when I travel around different places, the response uh, can be quite different in different places. I I spent a lot of time traveling last year with RZIM and Ravi Zacharias International Ministries in different places of the world, different university settings, and the questions I'm asked are quite difficult. And sometimes the audience is we, to, to which we speak are, are often hostile. It's great to be in a place where I feel like we're on the same team. And so, because I spend most of my life answering questions, I take advantage of every opportunity I can now to ask them where somebody else is having to give me uh, the lowdown on some difficult issue, maybe where there's some tension. And my text with you today is Genesis 1 through Revelation 22. We're gonna look at the big picture for a moment. Uh, I said I was doing a lot of conference and things with Ravi Zacharias last year. I was actually with him in Sri Lanka, and I don't know how many of you know who that is. We, he passed away in March, but Ravi Zacharias, probably the sharpest intellect of our day, probably a modern C.S. Lewis. And I met him in New Delhi, and then we were going to go over to Sri Lanka. Before I got to Sri Lanka, my friend Dr. Ajay Law, uh, who I'm sure most of you are familiar with, said, look, Jeff, I know you enjoy the game of golf. And so how about if I set up a game of golf in New Delhi for you at the oldest golf club in India? Of course, I wasn't going to turn that down. I had one day left before we would go over to Sri Lanka. And I arrive at the golf club and they pair me with a member. You can't play this private club unless there's a a member that you're playing with. And I don't know anybody in New Delhi. So they just were very hospitable and they paired me with someone else. So after about the first or second hole, we start engaging in conversation and I learn that I am playing with a Hindu philosopher. And, I mean, you can't make this stuff up. God does this with me all of the time. Suddenly, I've got a guy that's teaching philosophy and Hinduism at the university in New Delhi. And now, you know, if you're a Christ follower and you you travel somewhere around the world and you meet someone else who's a Christ follower, you don't have to have a lot in common, but if you have Jesus in common, suddenly there's a bond, isn't there? Just a common bond. Golfers are the same way. We, we are all trying to defeat this game that can never be defeated. So there is an instant friendship, an instant bond that forms. And so about lunchtime, we play, it takes four hours to play around the golf. We're having lunch. And then he began to drop his guard. And I could tell that he dropped his guard. So I looked at him and I said, look, pay very close attention to this, folks. It's very important. I said, tell me something. 
Can I ask you a question? Because he had asked me a, probably half a dozen over the course of four hours about Christianity. I said, what is your biggest concern about the Hindu millennial? What's your biggest concern about the Hindu millennial? Remember, he teaches philosophy and he teaches Hinduism. Without missing a beat, he says, I guess my greatest concern to the Hindu millennial is how open they are to Christianity. And then he said, because of Christianity's coherency. Now, if you know anything about pantheism, uh, Hinduism, it's pretty much God is in everything and everything is God and there's no real problem with contradiction of any kind. You just move on. But he said the, the millennial Hindu, because he or she has access to the world wide web, is being introduced to worldviews that have a sense of coherency where the contradictions are satisfied. And he said, especially in Christianity, remember every worldview has to answer the question of origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. And you have to do so in a way that is coherent, which is why atheism fails its own test, right? Because if you don't believe there's a God, there is no absolute morality. There's no such thing as absolute evil or good because there's no absolute moral category to define those or whatever event in your life occurs that is evil and good. And there's no, no God to give us an absolute moral law to define those categories. And so atheism fails its own tests. For some reason, Christianity now is very appealing to a new generation. And he said, especially because Christians have this historical objective reality to point to in the past that gives you a future hope of life after death. What he's talking about, the resurrection. And I thought, wow, here, here we are in America. We're concerned that the millennial may walk away from Christianity. He's concerned in India that the millennial may walk to Christianity. Folks, do you know right now there's 177,000 estimated Christians in Israel. According to the Jerusalem Post, in cooperation with the Barna Research Group, one-fifth of all Jewish millennials now believe Jesus is the Son of God. 80% identify themselves as religious Jews. 20% believe that Jesus is God in human flesh. Now, anytime something increases in a given generation by 10%, we call that an epidemic. So there's an epidemic of Christ followers occurring in Israel. 20% believe that Jesus was God in human flesh. Ari Kelman, who teaches philosophy at Stanford University, I often follow what he writes, not because I agree with him, because he has a pretty good hold on religious culture. He says, these don't look like Jews I recognize. Maybe these are Jews we've never seen before. Last November in Atlanta, Ravi and I were just having a chat in his offices. We spent half a day together. And I said, Ravi, I know you travel all around the world. So he goes to Oxford, uh, Harvard. He's been to the Lenin Military Institute. He speaks in places that most Christ followers will never get into just because of his winsome personality and his incredible intellect. I said, can you tell me, is it true what the social prognosticators are telling us about Christianity? Is it on the decline. He looked at me and said, don't believe that for a second. Christianity is alive and well. There are now 80 million Christians estimated in Russia, 100 million estimated in China. God and Jesus are alive and well. It's just that the center of Christianity has shifted. Now, what does he mean by that? Andrew Walls, who's another respected historian concerning Christianity, reminds us that wherever the world's religions began, that place continues to be its center today. So uh, Islam has its Arabia or its Mecca. Uh, Buddhism is is primarily a place like Thailand uh, in the uh, Eastern uh, mystic kind of religion faith. Its center is still in the East. 
And then you have Hinduism, which is predominantly and primarily an Indian religion. And most Hindus today live in India. But he said, where Christianity is concerned, its center is always shifting, it's always moving. From Jerusalem to the Hellenistic Gentiles, from the Hellenistic Mediterranean world to Alexandria, North Africa to Rome, then to the Northern Europeans, the Franks, the Anglo-Saxons, the Celts, all of Europe and beyond. And then Wall says that in the 20th century, Christianity began to recede in Europe and North America, and she began to flourish in Latin America, Asia, and Africa. So that in the last decade, a major corner was turned. More than 50% of all Christians in the world now live in the Southern Hemisphere. You hear what he's saying? Christianity is shifting away from the Americas and Europe into the Southern Hemisphere. When Andrew Walls was asked why he thought that was happening, he said, you might say there's a certain vulnerability of the cross of Jesus Christ. Vulnerability. I really didn't know what he was referring to until I read Tim Keller's book, King's Cross, where Keller elaborates on what Andrew Walls said, who I think gives a great commentary on what my friend Dr. Ravi Zacharias said about Christianity is alive and well, it's just that the center has shifted. He says this, he says in his book, King's Cross, Tim Keller, the heart of the gospel is the cross. The cross is all about giving up power, pouring out resources, serving. When Christianity is in a place of power and wealth for a long period, the radical message of sin and grace on the cross can become muted or even lost. Then Christianity starts to transmute into a nice, safe religion one that's for respectable people who try to be good. And eventually it becomes virtually dormant in those places and the center moves somewhere else. Philip Jenkins says in a work called The Coming Evangelical Crisis that affluence eventually will always snuff out Christianity. Now you know what affluence is, right? That's you and me. Affluence is when you don't have to worry about where your next meal's coming from. It's when you don't have to worry about having a roof over your head. It's when your car has a better home than two-thirds of the rest of the world. It's called a garage. He says that when Christianity is in a place of affluence for a long period of time, sooner or later, it will transmute into a nice, safe religion that's for respectable people, and it will shift its center to another arena. Now, let's, let's pause. What's he saying, and, and what does it matter, and pragmatically, how does that work itself out? How many of you know what I'm talking about when I referred to the Rwanda genocide in 1994? Do any of you know? Okay, so we're talking about a modern day genocide where the message came over the national radio, kill the cockroaches. They referred to the Tutsi tribe as cockroaches. The Hutus in a period of 90 days slaughtered over a million Tutsis. 1994, a modern day genocide. I was part of a group that was invited to come into Rwanda to preach the message of reconciliation in the prisons of Rwanda. President Kagame, an interesting guy, he's not a Christ follower, not a Christian at all, but he had studied philosophy and religion at Oxford, and he believed that the only hope for his nation was the message of the gospel. Interesting, isn't it? And, and until man is right with each other, there's no way they can be right or still, they, sorry, until man is right with God, he cannot be right with each other. And so he believed that pastors if they were to come into the prisons in Rwanda and preach the gospel of repentance and reconciliation, that perhaps there could be a restoration and a healing occur. So he invites pastors in. Our job was to preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and hope there would be repentance and then reconciliation with the families you had slaughtered. 
on my seventh trip into Kigali, into the prisons, my translator and I had developed a pretty close relationship. His name was Anastas Sabamunga. And I'd been flying for like 48 hours. I mean, you're on a plane, you have to go to Atlanta, to London, London, to Nairobi, Nairobi, to Burundi, Burundi, to Kogali. It's about a 48-hour journey, and you're exhausted. All I wanted to do was go to sleep. But Anastas Abamunga is waiting for me on the other side of immigration and passport control. I come out. As soon as I come out on the other side, Anastas says, Pastor Jeff, you're not going to believe this, but Kagame, President Kagame has opened a door for you. You're going to be able to preach the gospel up on the border of the Congo to those who orchestrated the genocide. So Kagame, by the way, I mentioned earlier how golfers bond. Kagame's a golfer. And so when we had tea with Kagame a few years ago, there was a bond. Pastor Jeff, are you ready to go? I said, great, let's have a good night's sleep. We'll go first thing in the morning. He said, no, gotta go now. We gotta be there by sun up. Now, Kogali or Rwanda is called the land of a thousand hills and they're not kidding. It just goes like this forever. So we get in the, uh, this van and I've got the hardest seat I've ever sat upon in my entire life. We're driving in the middle of the night. I'm so tired, I just wanna go to sleep. We drive about two and a half hours so that we position ourselves ready to go into the prison the next morning. 5.30 in the morning, I'm still tired, sleepy. We're in this hotel, and I use that term loosely. There was a window, open air hotel. I walk over, because there was a noise that had awakened me. I walk over, there's about 250 people kneeling on the ground praying. They're Rwandan Christians. I said to my translator, Anastas Abamungo, with whom I'd built a, a good relationship, we knew each other quite well. I said, what's going on? He said, well, these are how, this is how Christians greet the new day. Now remember, Rwandan Christians live hand to mouth. They live day to day. Every day is a task of knowing where your next meal is gonna come from, how you're gonna survive, okay? And yet they get up at sunrise every morning and they praise the God who provides every good thing. I looked at Anastas and I said, Anastas, can you tell me what's wrong with me? I mean, I have everything. I'm from the land of milk and honey, and I don't do that. And he said to me, don't worry, Pastor Jeff, you can't help it, you're an American. He said, you're distracted by affluence. In other words, we prayed in America that God would bless our country, and he did. And now those things have become our idols. And our real places of worship are our homes, and our cars, and our vacations, and our restaurants. And that's where we go to get our need met. He said, Pastor Jeff, we, we, we Rwandans, we have nothing. Jesus is all we have. And then I thought of a quote by Swindoll in the 70s. Chuck Swindoll said, you will never know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. There's a radical type of Christianity, folks, that's growing around the world, and it's in the Southern Hemisphere. It's in Africa. It's in Asia. It's in South America. And the center is shifting away from us to a radical kind of faith. We got to the iron gate. They opened the prison walls. The stench was almost unbearable. 11,500 prisoners in a prison built for 4,000 people. And right as I'm about to go in, 
I realized that Anastas had been giving me warnings that I'd never received when entering a Rwandan prison. All right, Pastor Jeff, when we go in, stay between me and the prison wall. When you get up to the stage, you will preach, but then you will not mix and mingle with the prisoners. The chaplains are behind you. They will take care of every decision that is made. You walk out between me and the wall. You say, you say goodbye, salutations, greetings to the uh, warden, and then we'll exit. And finally, right before we were about to go in, I looked at Anastas and I said, Anastas, am I in any danger? He looked at me and he said, Pastor Jeff, does it matter? I said, yeah. And then he said, you American pastors are all the same. You love preaching in Africa because it's so romantic, but when it may cost you your life, you start to back away. He's right. There is a radical type of Christianity because it's based after the cross of Jesus Christ and the pattern of life. And that is the way to life is through the death of yourself. I sat down with Ajay Law in 2016 before I was the vice president of the North American. And I said, Ajay, look, I want to give a story. I want to tell a story. What can we tell? He said, well, talk about the pastors who are going up into the northern regions on those borders where 70% of the rest of the unchurched people live, unreached people live in northern India. Talk about our pastors going up there and willing to give their lives so that people who've never heard the gospel can Talk about how they're being torched and beaten with iron rods and dipped in hydrochloric acid and raped and tortured. And then talk about what the pastors of India, what their message is to the church in America. And it's this, don't pray the persecution will end. Pray that we will be brave and courageous enough to endure it. This is how the kingdom grows. I've noticed in my entire life of missions that there's very much a different response from the American Christian when compared to the Christian that lives in these places where Christianity is just growing by leaps and bounds, when we in America suffer any kind of setback, whether it be COVID-19 or whatever it is, our first inclination is to say, God, why have you abandoned us? But the first inclination in places where Christianity is exploding, their first inclination is to say, how will God use this for his glory and the building of his kingdom on the earth? Do you hear what Tim Keller says? He says, in places of affluence, Christianity starts to transmute into a nice, safe religion, one that's for respectable people who try to be good. And eventually it becomes virtually dormant in those places and the center moves somewhere else. Listen, we're depending on you. We're depending on your generation, you right there. We're hoping you will turn the tide, you'll change this. That the kind of faith you have is radical that you'll be willing to do any and everything to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ and you'll stand strong in America and you won't give up on America. You'll go out with passion. But it'll be the kind of Christianity that gets the job done. And the number one enemy to the gospel of Jesus Christ is the gospel of moralism whereby we in America think we're just good people. Okay, we do need a little bit of forgiveness, so thank you for the cross. See you at the apocalypse. Otherwise, I'm gonna go on with my life. Hopefully, you'll change that and you'll live a Christ-centered life every day of your life and you'll be willing to give whatever it takes to get the job done. Let me tell you, I, I know I look old to you. Okay, I know what I thought about 55-year-olds when I was your age. It seems like just yesterday I was playing basketball in that gymnasium against Ozark. I was a Johnson grad. It seems like yesterday, it seems like yesterday I was right there. Can I tell you one of the most valuable lessons I've learned in preaching in ministry is that, and, it, and only about 10 years ago when I went through my own pain and suffering, is that the real issue is 
We need to fall in love with Jesus again, but you're not going to fall in love until you realize what he's truly done for you. And if you don't think he's done that much, your love will be that shallow. Did not Jesus himself say, he who has been forgiven much loves much. Do you know what he's done for you? And as I've traveled around the world talking to university students or in churches or leadership groups, I've started to realize that the cross is brilliant in the mind of God, absolutely brilliant. It's not only about the atonement, it is about the atonement, and that's primary, but it answers the deepest, most penetrating questions of our lives. Let me give you one example. Think about how if God truly wanted to communicate to you and me that he loved us, how does a transcendent God Communicate in a language you and I can understand the depth measure of his love for us. Now, those of you who are studying Greek, you'll know there are four Greek words in the New Testament primarily for love. You've got agapao, agape, that everybody knows, unconditional love. Phileo is a friendship type love. Eros, which is a romantic type love, husband and wife. And then you've got this word storge. Storge is a parental type love. Agapao, we love, or agape, we love, but we know our love is primarily contingent. We like agapao, but we're not sure we can actually give that kind of love. Storge is a different story, and it's the most related to agape. Storge is a parental type of love, and how many parents do you know that would give their lives for their children? I mean, they may not give their lives to their own husband or wife. They may say, you know, he's lived a long time. He needs to go. But for most of our kids, most of our kids, what's the saying that we have in our culture? A parent should never outlive the child. The deepest, most penetrating kind of love in the human experience is that of a parent for a child. So what does God do in a way you and I can understand? He gives up what is most precious to him so that he will not lose us. And I've realized in my preaching that my job is not you know, when you're young, you think, if I can just condemn and convict these people, if I can just guilt them into serving and giving into a radical type of Christianity, and let me tell you, it will never work. It works temporarily in the short term, but it will never work long term. And then it dawned on me, the byproduct of falling in love with Jesus is serving and giving and sacrifice and generosity and living for a purpose greater than yourself. The real issue the real issue is you cannot guilt someone into living a Christ-like life. So my job in the pulpit is to just keep giving Jesus, keep giving Jesus every weekend. Let me show you Jesus. Let me show you Jesus until you fall in love with him. And when you do, all these other things will be byproducts. We're counting on you. We are counting on this generation to change America, to change the world. Now, just quickly, in the time I have left, I want to give you three examples, and I've only got about seven minutes, so the first one we'll deal with, and I'll just mention the other two. Here's what I've learned. As I've traveled around, most people's questions fall into these three categories. Can somebody please explain pain and suffering to me? Number two, can somebody please give me an objective hope, something that I can really count on, take to the bank concerning what happens to me after I die? And three, will somebody teach me, is there a transformational power that comes not from the top down, but from the inside out? Those are the three questions. And here's what I've learned about the cross of Jesus Christ, and it's why we're focusing on it this year at ICOM, is only Jesus offers you a satisfactory answer to all three. It's not just that he's the only one that answers it, he's the only one that gives you a satisfactory answer. Let's take the first one, pain and suffering. Only Jesus gives a satisfactory answer. If you live life long enough, you know sooner or later you're gonna suffer. 
By the way, have any of you, when COVID-19 came, did any of you, the first thing you said, I wonder how God is gonna use this for his glory, was that your inclination? I was doing a debate in Australia in the late 90s. And the person I was debating, it was on national radio, said to me, you know what? You talk about pain and suffering, but your God really doesn't answer it any more exhaustively than any other faith system. I said, hold on a minute. Buddhism tells you that pain is an illusion. Hinduism tells you that you're paying for something you did in a previous life. Atheism fails to justify the question. Again, if there's no God, there's no meaning, there's no such thing as ultimate pain and suffering because there are no categories to define it. What does Jesus offer that's any different? Isn't it interesting, the oldest book in the Bible is the book of Job. Most scholars believe it is the oldest book in the Bible. And what is Job's complaint to God? For 37 chapters, he says, God, if you'll just tell me why I am enduring this pain and suffering, then I'll be able to go through it. If you'll just tell me why it's happening, then I'll be able to accept it and deal with it. And God puts up with this for 37 chapters and then God shows up and speaks to Job and says, Job, let me get this straight. If you know why all these things are happening to you, you'll be able to readily accept it. And Job says, yeah, that's basically my argument. And God says, what? Really? And he gives him a series of 64 questions. Where were you when I created the foundations of the world? Have you been to the constellations? Job, you have no idea how deep and wide and vast the constellations really are. You've not even been to the deepest parts of the sea. There are animals that man will never discover in the deepest, darkest regions of the oceans. And then he gives this simple little illustration. He said, you don't even know how a doe gives birth to a fawn in the wilderness. That it happens, you know. The intricate details of how it happens, you got no clue. What's the point? God is saying to Job, Job, there's a thousand things that you readily accept every day in your life for which you do not have an exhaustive understanding. Your pain is no different. There is a place at which you stop as finite and I begin. Now, if that was the end of the message of Christianity, that'd be depressing, but it's not, is it? What's the next part of it? What does Job say at the end of the book? He said, before my, eye, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Anyone who has suffered any amount of pain in their life knows that you never really get to know who Jesus is until he's walked with you through suffering. Having experienced two and a half years of severe anxiety disorder, I can tell you until I had gone through that, I had no idea who Jesus really was and is. And that's why the promise of the Christian message is that Jesus takes whatever the disadvantage is, turns it into an advantage and uses it for the glory of God. No one else offers that to you. John Polkinghorne, a professor of quantum physics, Cambridge University, so he's not lacking intellectually. He says one of his favorite illustrations is that it dawned on him one day that the relationship between the expansion and contraction of the universe in the early picoseconds, so picoseconds is the time that it takes something traveling the speed of light to cross a hair's breadth. If you understand the precision and the relationship between expansion and contraction of the universe and the early picoseconds, you would know that it's like taking a bow and arrow and firing at 20 billion light years across the universe and hitting a bullseye every time. And then this quantum physicist says, if God can bring beauty and pattern and design out of the early picoseconds of the universe and its chaos, then I believe that God can bring beauty and pattern and design out of the chaos of my life. 
Only Christ offers that. There is no other worldview, no other philosophical system. And we're depending on you to take that message to the world because it's what they, they need some guidance. They need some direction. And only Jesus addresses satisfactory that question of pain and suffering and evil. Now, second, quickly. I said the other thing they're looking for is that objective hope. Something that they can look to. Remember what the Hindu philosopher said in the first part of the message? Something they can point to objectively, historically in the past that would give them confidence of a future hope. The resurrection. You know, I was on a radio station once in New Zealand for three hours. There's a call-in show on national radio and people could call in and, and, and basically they were trying to debunk Christianity. Finally, this one lady calls in. She goes, Pastor Jeff, I like what you're saying and I like your passion, but I just don't agree with you. You have no objective proof whatsoever that there's life after death. And you know, it's amazing. Immediately, and I think these are God moments, immediately I thought of the Apostle Paul facing that same argument in 1 Corinthians 15. And do you remember what he did? He pulled an illustration from the environmental sciences. And he said, okay, can you explain to me how, let's take an apple seed. Can you explain to me how an apple seed can go down into the ground, die, decompose, and then spring forth into a beautiful apple tree? Can you explain that? You know that it happens. You know we know it happens. We don't know how it happens. We just know that it does. Science may explain two ounces of this universe, but there's so much that's not in the purview of science. And then Paul says, the, the body that shall be is far more glorious than the former. How, are, are you guys football fans? Who, who does Joplin pull for? The Colts? The Cardinals? Chiefs? Okay, whoever your favorite team, you think, about, you think about pragmatically how this works itself out in your life. Let's say that you're a big fan of, a, let's just say you're, whoever your team is, somehow you're able to get in a time machine and go forward and your big team is in the big Super Bowl, and you're able to determine, because you go into the future, the end of the game, and you discover that your team won, and now you get in the time machine, you come back to watch the game with all your friends. Tell me your experience is not gonna be totally different now, because you know you win in the end. So when there's a fumble, your friends may be panicking, oh, it's over, the momentum has shifted, there's no way we can win now. There might be a pick six, oh no, that's really the end, no way we can come back from this. There might be penalties of over 50, 60 yards, you know, no way we'll ever overcome this, no team ever wins the Super Bowl being penalized this much but you'll respond differently than all your friends. You'll sit there in a calmness and you'll have this overarching joy, even though you have moments of sorrow, this peripheral type sorrow, you'll have an overarching joy. Why? Because you know you win in the end. That's how you're supposed to be experiencing life because you know you win in the end. And the fumbles and the setbacks and the pick six, whatever it is, supposed to be momentary. That's why G.K. Chesterton said, for the Christ follower, we are totally different than the one who doesn't know Jesus. For the one who doesn't know Jesus, sorrow is central, joy, peripheral. They have moments of joy, but they live with this overarching realization they're gonna die one day and it's all gonna come to an end. So joy is peripheral, sorrow central, but for the Christ follower, he or she's figured it out. They know, they win in the end, so joy is central. Does that mean you don't have moments of sorrow? Of course you do, but you interpret it in light that the big questions have been answered. Origin, meaning, morality, destiny. You came from God, created in his image. The meaning of your life is to proclaim his name. Morality comes from God. It's objective, not subjective on the way culture feels. And destiny, you know with certainty you're gonna be in eternity with God in heaven because of something that happened in the past. And then finally... 
I'm telling you, these are the answers the world's looking for. Did you see Wrath of Khan, Star Trek? Do you remember the Genesis effect when the torpedo shoots into this planet and everything that's dead suddenly becomes alive? Do you know the Puritans call the Holy Spirit the expulsive power of a new affection? You and I are told that we are partakers of the divine nature of the Spirit of God, that when we receive him as Savior, he comes on the inside. Do you feel that? You're supposed to see things you've never seen, feel things you've never felt, do things you've never done, a greater sense of volition. Can you remember when that transformation happened in your life? Because if you can't, maybe you've not fallen in love with them yet. And so let me give you Jesus again. He saved you. He walks with you during pain and suffering. He takes a disadvantage, turns it into an advantage and uses it for the glory of God. And then he places his spirit in you so that you can see and feel and do, so that he changes not only what you do, but what you want to do. Have you had that transformation? And then finally, you know what the world is looking for? They're looking, who can can transform us truly? Let let me finish with this. By the way, the theme of ICOM this year is the cross before me. And what I'm doing, I'm trying to scratch the surface. But our speakers we were able to record Dr. Ravi Zacharias before his death. Dr. Ajay Law, Charlie Delaney, they're gonna go more deeply into this experience and I'm really encouraging you to go online. Ozark will tell you more and more about how to access this information but I'm, I'm challenging you to go and see how Jesus is changing the world around you in hopes that you'll fall in love. Here's what you learn over the course of your life. You know, when I was a kid, we, we called it uh, peewee baseball. Do they still have peewee baseball? You know, you're playing as a five or six-year-old. And I think now they use a pitching machine. But when I was a little boy growing up, you actually had a pitcher, a five or six-year-old, trying to throw strikes. And you got eight balls before you walked because it took them that many times to throw three strikes. And if you weren't very good, they put you out in right field. Now, this is the end. Stay with me here. They put you out in right field. And so I was in right field and I'd get bored because I I was ADD then, I'm still ADD. My mother told me, whatever you do, don't look at the the sun because she would catch me staring at the sun, you know, to see what would happen or finding four leaf clovers. And and I I just get bored. So I, and I learned something that I want to share with you quickly. And this is worth the price of admission, which I think is free. So that ought to tell you something. You look at the sun, if you stare at the sun, for like 15, 20 seconds and then close your eyes as tightly as you can. These little dots bounce everywhere and they're beautiful. Pink and purple and blue and yeah, it's amazing, but they're bouncing, they're unstable. So I practice over time and I discovered that if you look at the sun and then you close your eyes and then instead of trying to look at the dots, you look at a fixed point in the background, something interesting happens. The dots stabilize and come into your peripheral vision and you can see how beautiful they really are. And I don't know what happened. Some way over the course of my life, I realized what a great metaphor of life that is. As long as your focus is on your little life, your little dots, it, your life will be unstable and the beauty and wonder of life will never come into full view. But at that moment in your life, when you get that it's not about you and you take your focus off the little dots and you fix your gaze on something that's beyond you, bigger than you, then the little dots of your life will all stop shaking, they will stabilize and you'll see how beautiful life really is. Come on, we're dependent on you. Give your life 
to something other than yourself. And you'll change the world. You'll change it. Because the message that you have, nobody else has. Only Jesus and the cross. Father, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for ICOM. I thank you when I think about what's going to happen in just a few months where these great speakers from all over the world, musicians from all over the world, people who are changing the world, speak about the cross and how it's penetrating culture. I pray for Ozark Christian College. I pray for these students right here that they would go out with a message, with a great passion, but they would realize that to be a Christ follower is a radical decision. You give it all or you don't give it all. I pray for them in Christ's name. And we thank you for the cross that changes everything. Amen.